0: When trees are stressed, or can you say poisoned, how do you know? One way you know is that they shed their leaves. When an object, or even a human being, becomes very cold, how do you know? What happens? Objects contract. Human beings, we curl up. When a person, a Christian's faith, weakens, how do we know? One way we know is that their zeal for the church, for the brothers and sisters, wanes. In other words, they shed their service to the saints. What do you do when your faith is challenged, when you hit those hard times, when you're shaken at what you've read in the blogs, perhaps even about sovereign grace? When skepticism and cynicism and unbelief begins poisoning your mind, gaining leverage over a weakening faith. It can happen, can it? It can happen to us. It was happening to the Hebrews as well. At such times, church, it is so easy, is it not? To pull away from one another in dejection, or even in suspicion. You see, a weakening faith, a weakening resolution, can lead to weakening bonds that unite us as Christians, that unite us as a church. That's why I love and so need verse 1 of chapter 13. Let brotherly love continue. You see, it's this verse that acts as a lever. As a lever that pushes, propels me upward and outward, straining against the very protective tendencies and unbelief that I'm prone to when I'm under duress, when my zeal is waning, when my very faith is shaken. Let brotherly love continue, or can we say, let brotherly love persist. What? Type of love? Brotherly love. It's here in the simple word, brotherly, that we find a hint of what holds this passage and all these imperatives within together. And it's this word, brotherly, where we find gospel truth and gospel motivation. So the theme this morning, persist in love. First point, it's a love that flows from the gospel. You see, the author is speaking here to Christians. To those who are united, not by flesh and blood, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are family. You see, because of our redemption in Christ Jesus, because of the gospel, it says in Ephesians 2, that we are altogether part of the household of God. When Christ walked this earth, You know what he said? He said, those who follow me, who are my disciples, it is they who are my brothers and my sisters. In other words, we who are in Christ are one family. You are my brother. You are my sister. And I am your brother. Sunday mornings at our kitchen table, I love to look at my children in the eyes and say, today, kids we have a chance to meet with our spiritual family. And then often when they're younger, I'd say, and how are we going to greet our family? Let's walk through it. See, is this how you view Sundays? As a family reunion? As we gather together as family? Is this how you view other Christians? As your very brother or sister? You see, this familial designation comes, yes, with grace, but it comes also with responsibility as well. I want you to hear the words of the Apostle John. 1 John 3 16 and following. By this we know love, that he, that's Christ, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, we are called to lay down, lay down our lives for our brother. May I add, for a sister. Why? Because Christ laid down his life for you. Not only that, Christ laid down his life for the very brother and sister that he is calling you to serve, who's in the body of Christ. And it's this love for God and for one another that we are to persist in. It's this brotherly, gospel-centered love that motivates and drives us. It's a love, number one, that flows from the gospel. And point two, it's a love that gives And we see that in verses 2 and 3. Let's look at verse 2. We read, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Hospitality literally means a love of strangers. This could mean a love of those who are outside the family of faith. Certainly we're to love them. I think it could mean that. But I think in the context here, verse 1 the author is probably most likely speaking about those unknown fellow Christian travelers. See, how important it was in the day where there were a few hotels, how even more important it was in the day where travel was difficult, particularly for Christians who were ostracized because of their faith, to extend hospitality. But what is very clear in this passage, and many others in Scripture as well, is that the Word of God places... A high, high premium on hospitality as Christians. Do you? Paul writes in Romans 12, 13, Contribute to the needs of the saints. Listen to this. And seek to show hospitality. I love that intentionality. Seek to show. Peter likewise writes in 1 Peter 4, 9, Show hospitality to one another. I love this next phrase, without grumbling. (laughs) You gotta gotta love it. I mean, hospitality is hard work. And me, for one, I am prone to grumble. It's a lot of preparation, and it's a lot of cleanup. And there's a lot of unknown in between as well. It's called hospitality, friends. I think especially the early years. I mean, this is true about today, but for us, hospitality has just been a ripe context for adventure and disaster. I remember one of the first times Cindy and I had someone over for a meal as a couple with one child. It was a couple from our church. They weren't total strangers, but we didn't really know them. And they're people we wanted to get to know a little better. So we sat our guests down after Sunday for lunch at our antique table. It's the new antique table we had just purchased at an estate sale the week before. The problem is, we didn't realize how antique this table was, nor the chair was, until our pregnant guest sat down in the chair, and her bottom went right through the table. Pregnant woman, child and mommy, on the floor, chair and toothpicks. But it got worse from there. It had only been a few minutes later, we're hearing piercing noises coming from the other bedroom. Our two boys were running around as if they were demon-possessed. And then we hear a shriek of all shrieks. And our son comes into the room. And he has a dental imprint from the other child lodged in the back, in his back, in the skin. Punctured. Every tooth could be seen. A dentist would have been proud. And it didn't get much better from there, church. Welcome to hospitality. Hospitality is hard. You know, it's just vulnerable, too. Especially if you have children, oh. it's especially hard for those whom you don't know, for strangers. Especially when the stay is long. But listen to the reason why it's worth it, why we are told to exercise such hospitality. It's that second per- second part of verse two. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Here it is for, thereby. Some have entertained angels unawares. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. <laughs> when I'm reading the first part of verse 2 there, I wasn't anticipating that reason or motive. Uh, do you? Well, first of all, I'm not even sure what that means. But I'm going to take it at face value. I mean, if City and I have entertained angels, I am certainly unaware. Not saying it couldn't have happened. But, but what's being communicated here? Well... I think the Hebrew readers would have been very aware of the reference being made. In fact, there's several occasions in the Old Testament where we see Old Testament saints entertaining which turn out to be angels. But perhaps the most familiar story to the Hebrews and perhaps to you as well is found in Genesis 18. Don't need to turn there. I'll just give you a little recap of the story. Remember when Abraham and Sarah were visited by three men Not at the Oaks of Tumor, but the Oaks of Mamre. And Abraham fed them this lavish meal. He waited upon them. He even begged that they would stay longer and receive their hospitality. Well, it turned out these men were angels. In fact, one of them being the very Lord God himself. And it was at that time when they were hosting the Lord and these angelic beings, that they were told... By the angels, that Sarah's womb would be opened and they would be blessed with a son. Here's the point, I believe. You see, hospitality isn't to be viewed merely as a deed in which others are the beneficiaries. That is true. Rather, we as the host may prove to be the greatest beneficiaries. As God brings messengers of blessing to us. Have you ever experienced such blessing? I remember when my grandpa used to visit our house from out of town. Whenever he was there, he used to hide. I mean, some of you kids didn't know these anymore. They're called silver dollars big silver dollars. Yes, worth a dollar. And he would hide them underneath the furniture, even the pot of plants. But I was onto the pot of plants. I figured that went out pretty good after a while under the pot of plants. He would hide these silver dollars under the kitchenware. You name it. But it was only after he was gone and left that I would discover these blessings. I thought I was the richest kid in the world. I just think that serves as a great picture of the temporal blessings of hospitality. You see, the blessing of hospitality and acts of mercy are much richer than silver or gold. In fact, they are eternal. Christ's words, his startling words, summon up. I want to read Matthew 25, verses 34 and following. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, a stranger, and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Wow. Perhaps you've been waiting around hoping that someone would would invite you into their home. Perhaps even here at church. You know, if you're honest, perhaps you even have a little attitude about it as well. My God be saying to you this morning, to us this morning, persist in love, exercise hospitality, and receive my blessings. Start small. Coffee. Dessert. Perhaps it does even lead you to consider opening your home even to a stranger. It's not that infrequent that we hear of needs, of those who are moving down to Miami and need a place to stay, maybe temporarily. We send out those emails, did that, that one a couple weeks ago. Maybe God will prompt you to open up your home to the stranger, this person in need. You know, I think that's happening at Palm Vista. So I do want to encourage you I think it's happening among many of you. Now, I'm in danger here there's many I'm not even aware of, but I just, so many names flood into my mind. The Abegs, the Fabregases, the Beechams, and some of our newer families, the Beisners, the McDaniels. Not just families, even singles. I think of Nathan, how many people he's had live in his home over time. I think of you who host home groups. Thank you. Month in. And month out, thank you for your example of hospitality. I do believe God is pleased, and I trust you are being blessed as well. But the author doesn't stop here, does he, with this hospitality? We're to persist in love by not only opening our homes, but catch this, opening our hearts as well. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. See that word, remember? This isn't just a, you know, cognitive exercise. Let's remember. No, it's more than that. It means to respond with, to identify with. But look, look at the reason why. Again, in verse 3. Since you also are in the body. Actually, literally, that reads in original language because you are in a body. See, while it is true that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, we're members of the same spiritual body, that is true, I believe the meaning here is a little more basic and even, even earthy. It's, it, it's, it's this. We all have physical bodies, and thus we know what it's like to suffer. We know the plights of humanity as those who have a body. He's saying, remember those who are incarcerated, physically suffering, and share in their humanity because you too have a body and you too, in some way, in some regards, knows what it means to suffer and to suffer physically. This is the very thing the Hebrews had been commended for. Just a few chapters back in Hebrews 10, the author here is saying, persist in love, don't give up. Empathize with the suffering, particularly those who are suffering for their faith. He goes on to say, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. You may read that and go, but Corey, I don't know anyone who's in prison for their faith. I don't even know what it's like. Well, find out. I don't mean it's like going to prison yourself. Be informed. Go to persecution.com. That's a real website. Subscribe to Voice of the Martyrs. There are brothers and sisters throughout the globe right now who are imprisoned and being tortured for their faith. Be informed, church. Pray. But I bet you also know someone, maybe another Christian, may not be in prison, but who has been mistreated because of their faith, because of their stand for the gospel perhaps mistreated by their own family, or even in the workplace as well. See, here's the point. Are you identifying with the mistreated, with the oppressed, and the suffering? In the body, as if you are suffering as well. This, this, this one goes on. If you are identifying with those four mentioned, you know what else will be happening? You're also going to be seeking to help meet their needs. I bet on it. That means praying. Praying for the persecuted, the mistreated, the oppressed. That may mean giving. Yes, giving. Giving to the needy. That may mean going. May mean joining us on a mission next team. The next time we have one, to Dominican Republic, to Haiti, to Cuba. You know what else this does when we identify with the oppressed? You know what this, this prayer giving and going does, it puts our whining complaints into perspective, doesn't it? And it propels us upward and outward to shed our leaves when we're tempted to shed our leaves, to contract and shrink back. That's what it does. But our persistence in love doesn't even stop there. Not only are we called to open our homes and open our hearts but we're also called to guard our hearts as well. Let me propose this to you. If you are not serving and letting saints into your lives, verses 1 through 3, you are probably not keeping sin or its temptation out of your lives. Let's say that again. If you're not serving and letting saints into your lives you're probably not keeping sin or his temptations out of your lives. Verses 4 through 6. See, we are called not only to love and serve one another boldly, but to guard our hearts tenaciously. Why? Because we can be lazy. We can be despondent in this area of our lives. As we can brotherly love. So persist in love. A love that flows from the gospel, we are brothers in Christ. A love that gives, and thirdly, a love that guards. Guards what? Guards our hearts. Here in this next section, we see two of the most prominent vices or sins of today sexual immorality and the love of money. Sex and money. Isn't God's word relevant? There's nothing new to the sun. It was true back then. It's true for us today as well, isn't it? Let's look at Hebrews 13, now verse 4. We read, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. What does that mean? Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be Be undefiled. I believe our author is saying to us, let marriage be celebrated. Let marriage be honored. And let sex be enjoyed in the context of the marriage relationship alone. This is clear from the remainder of the verse. That four is in there, right? For God will judge who? The sexually immoral and adulterous. God will judge the adulterous. Who? Those who betray their spouse. Those who break their marital covenant. Having sexual relations with someone other than their spouse. God will also judge the sexually immoral. That's a broad ranging term, pornea. Meaning those who, who pervert God's intention for sex between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. And rather, seek all other illicit sexual relations and expressions, whether it be fornication, prostitution, pornography, or homosexuality. Please listen, church. When we retreat into isolation, when we fail to gather as believers, when we shrink back from brotherly love, sexual temptation and indulgence is never far behind. And the warning and the consequences cannot be more clear. Professing Christians, yes, professing Christians and non Christians will be judged for adultery and sexual immorality. Who will judge? It's clear, isn't it? Right here in our text. God will judge. You see, there's no ambiguity in Scripture regarding such sexual sin. I just want you to hear several verses. We're not going to put them up there. I just want you to hear them. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Ephesians 5.5 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In Revelation 21, eight, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, and the list goes on, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Church, those who are living in serial adultery, and fornication and are unrepentant are under the wrath of God whether you profess to be a Christian or not but do you hear this in Christ we are forgiven for all our sexual sins Judgment will not fall on us because judgment has already fallen upon his son in our place at the cross. But what is a sign? What is a sign that you are forgiven? That you are no longer under God's wrath? You no longer continue to sin. Doesn't mean perfection. You no longer continue in sin without remorse, without guilt, without change, i.e., without repentance. Judgment is coming. It will be meted out on the day of your death or Christ's return, whatever comes first, as we come before the throne of judgment. But the consequences of sin and thus earthly judgment will be experienced even before that day. If we fail to persist in brotherly love, if we fail to exercise the lever of brotherly love in our relationships, we will, in fact, be hating our brothers and our sisters. You see, when we sin sexually, it's never, it's never just a private matter. You are hating the person you are using and exploiting who is complicit In your sexual sin. For they too are under the same wrath of God. Unless they repent. And your sin and your hatred will have tentacles. You cannot contain it. It's not just a private thing. It will reach into your family. It will reach into the church. It will reach into society. It will divide friendships, families, leading to embitterment, disease estrangement, illegitimate children, abortion, and murder. And you know what? It's a little different with the love of money. It's no different. Thus, in the first portion of verse 5, we read, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Just as the issue wasn't sex per se in verse 4, but the perversion of it. So the issue here isn't money per se, it's the love of it. In other words, it's covetousness. You see, church, we were created, created to love people and to use things. When we fail to properly use this lever of brotherly love, when we fail to persist in it, we do the opposite. We end up using people and loving things. We end up using people and loving things. To quote Randy Alcorn, I believe, it's true with sexual sin, and it's true with love of money, and it's destructive. First Timothy 6.10, we read these words. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many pangs. With many pangs. Our love of money, our covetousness, our craving for a bigger home. Even our craving just for personal security. Our craving maybe for retirement. Just for a little leisure. Left unchecked can destroy our very souls. And those who stand in the way. Church, this is a hard teaching. I realize. <laughs> but what's the answer? What's the prescription? Oh, look at verse five again. I love the admonition here. Once again, it's not the answer that I would expect it's in verse five. "Keep your life free from love of money. Ready? And be content. Yes, be content with what you have. Why? Listen to this. For he, that's God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The author's antidote's right here. It suggests that even the Hebrews might have been questioning or doubting God. Would God provide for them in their suffering, in their hardship, in their persecution? Don't we doubt the same many times? So what's the answer? It's right here and it's clear. In verse 5 and 6. Don't look to money. Stop looking to things. Look to God. Get him in the picture. Why? Because he will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, the opposite of covetousness is contentment. The opposite of covetousness is contentment. But it's not just a contentment in what you have. Oh, it's that. Oh, it's greater. No, no. It's a contentment and confidence in God. Does that describe you this morning? You see, this quote, in the last part of verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you, this is the crowning promise. This is the crowning promise, promise of God's covenant with his people. In this letter of Hebrews, this fairly long sermonic letter, there are many allusions to the Old Testament. There are many quotes in the Old Testament. But you know what? I believe the author has saved the best for last. And in fact, this is the last quote we see in the book of Hebrews. And it's this. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This promise was repeated to Joshua just before he entered the promised land to face the enemies and giants that awaited. God's very presence meant that God himself would be his defense. God himself would be his provision and power. Well, that's why Moses said in Exodus 33, I love this. He says, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. God, if you're not present, I'm not going. I'm not leaving the wilderness. I need, we need your presence. I love that attitude. Do you believe it? God's promise of his benevolent, all-sufficient presence among his people meant everything. You see, it was the game changer that propelled Moses, that moved Moses, that propelled Joshua into the promised land. You see, in sports, a game changer is an event which changes the whole outcome of a game. Could be an interception, could be a home run, could be a three-point shot. But a game changer is also a person. A person who, when in the game, can almost single-handedly lead a team to victory. When this game changer is in the game, there is always hope. Even when you're behind... And you feel defeated. Church. God is that game changer. Christ is that game changer. And that game changing event took place when Christ was crucified, when he was resurrected from the dead. That was the game changer that secured and that guaranteed God's eternal presence with his people. Does God's presence mean anything to you today? If it does, it must mean everything to you. Because it's this promise which propels us forward in brotherly love. That propels us forward to take risks for the gospel. That propels us forward and frees us from covetousness and idolatry. Why? That we may say in verse 6, the last concluding verse, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Don't you love those words? The Lord is my helper. You know how this verse reads? This is a quote from Psalm 118. I want you to read how this verse is translated from the Hebrew in Psalm 118. In the NASB we read, the Lord is for me. And in the ESV, it says the Lord is for me is on my side. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? If you are in Christ Jesus, the Lord is on your side this morning. See, he's just not with you as some witness or impartial bystander. No, he's your helper. He is for you. You, for you, for you, he is on your side. He is the game changer. And God will not leave you, even for a moment. There may be times when God seems to hide his face, right? Times we're tempted, yeah, to shrink back, retreat from him and one another, to shed our leaves, so to speak. Our text here says, That's it's God's word to us this morning, don't do it. God is saying, get me in the picture. Whatever the circumstances are that you're picturing right now, he is saying, get me in the game. I'm here. The game changer is here. When you step out in hospitality, when you pray and identify with the suffering, when our hearts are prone to covet and shrink back in sin. How do we know that God is for us? How do we know that he's with us? It's because of the cross. The game-changing event of the whole universe. And it's this cross that we're about to remember now as we prepare our hearts to take Communion. So we're going to do that right now. If we can do that quietly, transition. We're not finished yet. There is application in our hearts yet to be done, church, as we prepare our hearts to come together. What we're about to do is take the Lord's Supper. But I want you to hear this, and please don't miss this all the activity going on right now as we prepare. We do this. Together, corporately. We're doing this together as a family. As brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's the reality, church. Not only have we been saved to God, we've been saved to one another as the people of God under Christ's headship. And that means this. If you're here this morning, and if you are not a follower of Christ Jesus, and thus you are not part of the family, may I ask you respectfully to not partake in communion. Please just pass the bread and the cup as it comes to you. But if that is you this morning... Can I say this? I am so glad that you are here among us. Our prayer and desire is that one day you would partake with us. Because if you're not a Christian, you can be. But it starts with this. Acknowledging that you are spiritually dead, better than the tumor oaks that I mentioned earlier, the Bible says you don't just have a few dead leaves. Now you are poisoned to the root by your own sin. By the rebellion, your rebellion against God. You know those tumor oaks I mentioned earlier? Well, professors came out and they tried to spray the ground with liquid charcoal to bind the poison. Apparently that didn't work. So they replaced the soil Around the roots of the tree. Tons and tons of new soil. Maybe that will work. You know what? Didn't work. And I thought, you know what? We're gonna dig a hole four feet deep and we're gonna spray the roots down. Maybe we can clear off some of the poison. Spray it off. You know what? Didn't work. Why? Those tumor oaks don't need a spray down. They don't need new soil. They need new roots. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you need new roots. The Bible says in another way, you need a new heart. Only Christ can give you that new heart. You must repent of your sin. Trust in Christ who took the wrath and judgment that you deserved and placed it upon his son. Why? Oh, that you may be forgiven that you may be cleansed, that you may receive a new heart, new roots, and bountiful fruit to the glory of God. If that's you, you desire that, you can do that right now. You can do it in the quiet of your own chair. Ask God. Talk to Him. Ask Him to make you new. Even now, as we pass the elements. So ushers come down at this time. We're going to pass up the elements now. If you could hold on to the elements when everyone is served, I'll come back up here and together we will partake as a family. Thank you. Church, how do we know that God is for us? How do we know That he's on our side. Because Christ is on our side. How do we know that God is with us? Because of Emmanuel. Christ with us. It is Christ who came to earth to live the life that we could not live. And to die the death that we deserved. That we deserve for our sexual immorality. The death we deserve for our covetousness. The death we deserve for our selfishness. In the words of Christ, on the night he was betrayed, he said this, is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, take and eat. Christ's body, broken for you. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, take and drink Christ's blood shed for you. Let us stand. Let us respond in worship and song as we conclude.